Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about care. So there's been a lot of conversation in feminist circles about self-care, especially as people have seen a huge number of folks who have not been politically active want to get involved in direct action protests or grassroots organizing. And so I guess we should start by thinking about how self-care has become a kind of meme among activists and why it's circulating so much now. Well, I feel like self-care is mostly used by women. It's mostly targeted towards women because no one else really cares for women. And women traditionally are the caretakers of other people. If there's a role in which caretaking is involved, it's going to be a woman most of the time. Also, when women are ailing emotionally, Sometimes even physically, they don't really get care from other people. Mm -hmm. So they have to do it themselves. There are a lot of complicated things that um, women are dealing with in order to like advance our own rights. And so self-care, I think, is like a, plays a big role in getting there. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's obviously part of the self-care conversation that's really white because it does presume a s certain amount of disposable income or leisure time that's super classed and, and certainly racialized. And, but that being said, I think it's true that one of the reasons it's that self-care in particular is circulating is because there's been so much work done both in second wave and third wave feminism around structures of care and carelessness that it makes sense that people are thinking about the relationship between care and labor, right? And so I'm thinking of Hothschild's work on emotional labor in particular and thinking about the second shift that married women do when they come home from wage labor or the single mothers who are working are doing when they come home and do domestic labor after working a full day doing wage work and what that means for their mental health and their physical health and the kinds of things they need to feel whole. So there's one aspect of it that's definitely about labor, I think. And then the other is exactly the piece that you're talking about, the lack of care that they get from the culture and what that means for their ability to juggle working and potentially caretaking and then political work, you know, of varying natures. I mean, I also feel like, you know, there's a lot more of an academic conversation perhaps than a, a social conversation about the workplace as a space of carelessness. I think a lot about uh, work husbands and managing up and um, what happens when women pick up the slack at work with less pay for male colleagues who aren't doing as much or for... Um, or when people of color are forced to do diversity labor in the institutions where white people are doing less work and having more leisure time and more time for research and stuff like that to advance their careers when they're not doing 
institutional reformulation as ways that undermine the ability of oppressed people to create structures of care for themselves. I feel like care is not just about work, though. I mean, it involves like this emotional aspect, which is a, requires some kind of energy. Yeah. So I think the labor of care is important to talk about, but also the fact that it requires this like emotional capacity that is a lot of times exclusive to women because they're the ones who like relate to other people more. And caretaking is an active relation that can like yeah. help rebuild like those skills too. So I find it that aspect interesting because there is such a lack of care culturally and emotionally that women generally experience. Yeah. And I'm kind of like stuck on that. <laughs> you're you're stuck on care because lack of care is totally debilitating in terms of social mobility, in terms of just bandwidth, emotional bandwidth, and the ability to continue. It's it's difficult in terms of just like maintaining survival skills. I mean, it is base level Maslow hierarchy of needs must have care to continue, and it is resolutely withheld from whole populations of people as a punishment for them existing in social structures where they can neither produce nor consume at the level of elites. Here's the thing is that I think that women just get so crushed because, uh, especially in Christian traditions, but not exclusively, they are expected to martyr themselves over care. So the expectation is that they produce, you know, this Marxian surplus of care that's undervalued. And so like they're expected to produce it and produce it and produce it to their own detriment. And then they're also taught that like the only pleasure that they have access to is the pleasure of caring, which creates cycles of codependence and, and just general dependence and reinscribes dominance. That's in a, it's really unhealthy. So, so yeah, I think that there are multiple competing influences that push women to the breaking point because they're asked to give so much of their time and their money and their emotional capacity to so many populations of people. So their children, to their partners, to their parents, to the people that they work with, especially men, to their social support network, who are family or friends, to be helpmates in volunteer efforts. I mean, it's women who run the PTA, and it's women who do the clothing and toy drives, and it's women who are filling all of the gaps. They're the little boy with his finger in the dike, right, that are trying to smooth over all of the gaps um, that a hyper-segregated culture perpetuates by refusing to allow the culture to be one that's healthy where the resources and the rights are equally distributed. Here's the other thing is that care itself, like those acts are completely undervalued. Oh, yeah. Economically for sure, but also just like culturally also. Like the values that we find (laughs) important are like, integrity and power and individuality and domination and able-bodiedness and the actions that involve care, (laughs) which are like interdependence and empathy and (laughs) (laughs) um, trust. Um, All of those things are like less valuable, it seems. So... 
I, and I, I mean, I see that happening like on a personal level, like with how people act in positions of power or, or in like relationships I have with men. Yeah. I had a conversation with a male friend last week, um, a heterosexual male friend who was saying that, um, he thought that women care too much and that he couldn't understand why we had so much, um, emotional trauma to share and why we bothered to do that kind of labor and that men do care differently. And we had a long conversation about it. And I said, you know, men do care differently when they care at all. I said, but you know, the midlife crisis and the second younger wife and the suicidal thoughts and the depression and anxiety that come from rigid, rigid gender roles that often preclude men from showing care in public or in private actually really undermine men's ability to care for themselves and others in really profound structural ways. And it's intentionally created that way. The gender mm-hmm. expectations are intentionally maintained yeah. to undermine men who want to care from doing so or participating equally in care culture. And so they don't, men don't develop or nurture the vocabulary of care. So like they have lower numbers of words for feelings and they use less of them. I mean, obviously everybody talks about how men don't cry in public or show emotion or break down, how they're, they're Mm -hmm. not, you know, encouraged to do so and they're punished from doing so. They are, I think, punished socially and stigmatized for showing care for romantic partners, regardless of their sexual orientation or their gender identity, and are routinely undermined socially for participating in care structures at work and in public. And so that other side of that is not, it's not just that women are martyring themselves for their families and their communities, right? Because that's the cultural expectation. The other cult side of that is like, at least from a perspective of compulsory heterosexuality, men are discouraged from helping with that care labor as well, which is emotionally and socially stunting them and isolating them and alienating mm-hmm. them from themselves and from others, which makes them everybody else's problem. Right. <laughs> which just compounds like the amount of labor. I joke about it in my gender class. I'm like, how many of you women have like rolled over and asked your male partner, like, what are you thinking? And he's all like, nothing. And I'm like, that's like the rest of your life. <laughs> like the the mm-hmm. level of emotional content in your intimate relationships as a result of you know compulsory heterosexuality and these rigid gender expectations about care will continue to look like that or even in your work relationships oh like yeah i put in my notice at work recently and one of my bosses responded by flipping me off and you know i i realized that it wasn't like an aggressive action and later he told me he only did that because he like he said he only flips off the people he really likes <laughs> he's I, so grown that's so juvenile and well, use he, your words he just use your words like he he really does have that feeling like he really does have like care about me in some whatever twisted <laughs> what you're looking for is twisted right way. um but he had no capacity to actually tell me like hey we're really gonna miss you you've done a really good job here he just flipped me off and, but as a substitute for oh, that I, kind of capacity. And part of the reason I put in my notice there, of course, is that the place lacks care. What he did was symptomatic of the lack of support. And there's a lot of women who work there and they just generate it for themselves. And that, I mean, that can drain you. 
you know, they told me when I was leaving, you know, you've done a really good job. We really value you. And I was like, that would have been nice to hear before I quit because you never <laughs> say that. Yep. <laughs> I hear about my mistakes in order of magnitude more than I hear about that I've done well or that I'm like generally doing well. So, I mean, I think that's not a problem that is isolated to that particular environment. No. <laughs> I think it's a pretty common. And I see men doing stuff like that all the time where they like will substitute action or like something quick or easy as a substitute for actual <laughs> emotional. Well, okay, so the th- I yeah, that story is so fucked up because it demonstrates how emotional vulnerability is asymmetrical warfare in a culture that undermines care and that punishes care. And so you see you see romantic relationships and work relationships scaffold in this way that it's like whoever shows emotion first, who blinks first is the weak one. And that is how all of our social relationality is built on this asymmetrical warfare. Mm-hmm. We're feeling and caring our weapon, weaponized and not part of a valued structure of belonging to community. You know, whether that's right. wage labor community or, you know, whether that's your, you know, municipal community or your family or whatever. And the, it just totally comes from the alienation of labor and the, that feeling of alienation from other people. The bad thing about that is in those kinds of environments, and I've been in many of them, I typically take the tack, which is not appropriate probably, of trying to care less. So oh, yeah. <laughs> I act in ways that like will allow me to distance myself from those environments because they lack care in that significant way. And in turn, I'm contributing to, like, the general... <laughs> nah. I mean, it's it's like saying that all violence is the same. It's neither the same in scope right. or kind. I mean, but being um, distant is probably not the right approach. Well, not all emotional vulnerability that a self performs is transformative for other selves. So it seems extremely prudent, <laughs> right, to be strategic about where vulnerability has transformative potential and where it does not. You know, with, and and that is context dependent. It's relationship dependent. It's dependent on capacity, and it changes over time. And so, I think it's super prudent to roll. I mean, obviously, I shout to all my friends like, you got to divest in that relationship. Yeah, you have to divest divest emotionally from that space right. because it is has zero transformative potential at right. the moment. It's not reasonable continue to put yourself into right. that vessel when nobody when everybody wants to destroy the vessel. Right, and I'm obviously doing that now. Oh yeah. <laughs> My goal then is to find environments where I can be active and present and completely present and available, um, where I can be my complete full self and contribute in ways that I think create a better environment for women, for everyone. (laughs) It's hard as someone who does a podcast like this and who actively cares about trying to understand what's going on with our culture and trying to actively infiltrate it however minor that infiltration may be it's hard to realize when there are environments that constrict you from doing that or like when the lack of care prevents you from doing that but you don't want to self-care so you can continue like contributing to a black hole you want to self-care so you can continue contributing to the things that you care about and the things that care back (laughs) or Creating things that can eventually care back. 
I mean, I feel like I'm in a weird place now because as my career has expanded and changed, I'm asked to do tremendous amount of care for strangers, which is a weird thing. It's a very different thing than caring for your intimates, which I like to do and I'm, I think, pretty good at. But the random strangers who hit me up for huge amounts of emotional care with no connection, where it's so strikingly... Um, unequal in terms of the ability to reciprocate or, I don't know, manage the care, I am really struggling with because that's a place I see just women especially just burn out on, you know, is when they get sucked into non-reciprocal relationships. So I try to manage my peer relationships so that they are as reciprocal as possible where both both partners are invested in care relationships that are long-term and dense and interesting and forgiving and full of failure and success. But I, I'm pretty, especially with men, male friends who cannot return care, I'm pretty brutal about just cutting them out. I, mm-hmm. I can't, I, I just do not have the capacity for men who refuse to acknowledge their willful disengagement with care as a permanent feature of their personality, I just refuse to carry them or lift them or climb. I just really want to push them off the ledge. I, Your friend told you that you care too much. Yeah. That's a, such a bizarre thing. Like, he wants, I guess, he wants to hang out with cool girls only. You know, we talked about cool <laughs> yeah. girls in our last episode, and they're women who uh, try to accommodate or work to accommodate men, like, they're attractive, but they don't really express their feelings and they watch sports and they eat pizza. Like they care about their appearance, but they're like down to hang. So there's like that cool girl thing. And I mean, but men who want that, <laughs> like a girl who doesn't care too much, I guess they're not feminist. No, definitely. They're not. just, <laughs> they're not feminist. No, they're not feminist. And I, you know, it's like, you want my emotional labor to help you survive in the absence of any ability to self-care or for a culture that cares for you, but you're unwilling to reciprocate, that's a deal breaker for me. It's like 100% a deal breaker. And I don't, I don't like that shaming of women for caring thing, even while I like pointing out the dynamics that undermine women's self-sufficiency or their ability to, to build coalitional power, solidarity or intersectional um, solidarity. But I just, that the, there has to be some other way other than overcaring and indifference is the dialectic. There right. has, I mean, and so I just, I, I really cut out that I just find it's toxic. I got to cut mm-hmm. it out that the dependence things where there's no vocabulary for mutual care. I just, that's a really unworkable thing. I can work with ambivalence. I can work with a lack of skill, you know, for peers. Mm-hmm. I can work through a whole host of weird arrays of, interest even mm-hmm. but man i just cannot do the full the full-blown rejection of emotional availability is such a turnoff for me as a human i can't invest there like those are those are people that i just cannot invest in when this when there's no possibility for reciprocity yeah. i mean i feel like people who are like that i mean i'm sure they've heard that they don't care enough on broken <laughs> oh yeah record I just, I just don't understand why that doesn't resonate as like it's okay <laughs> like, 
Like, it's going to be reciprocal. Like, you can care. I'm not going to just let you fall on your face. Like, uh, like lean in my, right? Yeah, right. You can lean back and I'll care for you. But you have to, you know, it has to be reciprocal. I think sometimes there's like this fear of care because they, they don't know if the care can be reciprocated. But women do it all the time without reciprocation. I mean, here's the thing is that I fundamentally think that whether it's friends or lovers or workmates or whatever, that the, the devaluation of care as a feminine activity is fundamentally about a refusal of men to commit to women as peers and allies and equals. And so I think all of that refusal to reciprocate intimacy and affection and wages <laughs> and rights is fundamentally about a refusal to commit to women as people. And I think it works the same for people of color and for queer people and disabled people. I think that the refusal for the culture as a whole to care for vulnerable populations is fundamentally about undermining their ability to exist as equal citizens in the culture. I think you see that work itself out in the healthcare debate or the Affordable Care Act. And I think that the moment that we're living in right now at the beginning of 2018 is one that is entirely about what it means to withhold care as a deliberate act of terrorism against certain populations. And healthcare is one major vector of punitive public policy that really eviscerates the political power of the most vulnerable people. And I think on a meta level outside of the interpersonal realm, this is where we see structures of care having huge amounts of influence, both to sustain or to destroy communities. So, you know, I think healthy care practices are one where obviously everyone has access to affordable health care as a right, as a human, and they have the right to public education, high quality public education, and they have a right to union membership where they can collectively bargain for their rights. I think those are, those are things that create healthy patterns of communication and solidarity and openness. And they're messy because democracy is messy, but they're super important in building counterstructures of collectivity. But the healthcare debate as it stands now, even after all those repeal efforts of the Affordable Care Act, is still about how can we punish people who care more than we care. And it still feels like this asymmetrical warfare where if you blink first, like if you're not hyper-masculine, if you're not the hegemonic white male, and you show any sense of caring about things, whether it's the environment or kids or um, the elderly or whatever, then you're going to be punished because the thing that, that they see as weak is caring. Absolutely. I mean, that's playing out right now. And I talked about how the, the care as a value is, isn't valued as highly as it should be. And it, I mean, just the policies that we're seeing now prioritize like extremely masculine values, the success of business, business with the tax bill, but not promoting the well-being of <laughs> your populace. Well, it's grossly unethical. Trying to repeal healthcare, even though it's a pretty conservative healthcare plan that we are currently operating under. I mean, yeah, one that was built by the GOP and the Heritage Foundation and piloted by Mitt Romney as governor of Massachusetts. Anyway, um, you know, I just, it's, budgets are moral documents. And this budget is grossly amoral. And it's unethical and it existed fundamentally uh, build generational wealth for the elites and undermine the political efficacy of vulnerable communities. 
And the reason why care structures are under attack is because they have the power to potentially transform. Now, are, you know, is the Trump administration going to say that that's the reason? Do they have the vocabulary to talk about that way? No, obviously not. They can't talk about it in that way. But the reason that they come for care structures is because that's what sustains political activism in the absence of unions and in the absence of formal collective, you know, um, organs for democratic communalism. And so, you know, it makes sense then that any federal policies that grow and sustain communities that are vulnerable are going to be under attack precisely because they have that transformative power. You know, it marks them as useful <laughs> for people who are being screwed over by this unequal distribution of resources and rights. So, you know, I think that it makes sense to look at care as a locus of liberation, even while we can see how women get shackled to expectations of overperformance of care that can undermine their ability to sustain themselves and their you know, communities of practice. On the whole, I think caring is where, and vulnerability are where you can overcome structures of ignorance and indifference and bigotry and things like that. And that's why I think that they're being undermined by current federal policy. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.